The book of Colossians begins on page 983 of your pew Bible. I do encourage you to pull that out or have your own Bible with you every week. That's always a good thing as well. The book of Colossians is, it isn't a book focused on any one thing. But if it were, it's focused upon what we might call the lordship of Jesus Christ. But by lordship, I don't mean just that he's king. Although, I mean that too. But by lordship, I mean that every time you see the word the Lord in the Old Testament, it's generally talking about Jesus. That Jesus is Lord, and this is not just a confession that he is king, it is a confession that he is God. It would seem that in this little town of Colossa in Asia Minor, that's Turkey, where Paul had never been, he'd never visited, they had been converted by someone else, and Paul might not ever come because he's in jail, probably in Rome, when he's writing this letter. In this little area, they're questioning the Godhead of Jesus. And so one of the main things that will happen in the book of Colossians is he's going to emphasize, no, no, Jesus is God. And we're going to get that today in chapter 1. He's also going to, of course, as always, focus upon the redemption that has been given to you in the blood of Jesus. That, as we'll see more and more this year, you were bought with a price. And that price, which is the blood that was shed for you, makes you set apart from the rest of this pagan, dying, flailing, darkness world. So that through the midst of this pagan, dying, darkness, flailing world, unlike the rest who have to wallow in the mug, you get to stand upright and walk. Because you're not stuck here. So this is one of the other major ideas, not only in Colossians, but in almost every letter that Paul writes, that your Christian faith is a walk. Now, this is one of these issues where in the last 200, 300, 400 years of Christianity, as other versions of Protestantism have gotten to English before we Lutherans did, they've grabbed certain phrases and words and they've taken them and they've twisted them. So that if someone comes up to you in your local Baptist church and says, hey, brother, how's your walk? It's not a good sign. He's trying to suggest something to you, about you. But the fact is, we really ought to ask each other, how's your walk? How's your faith? How you doing? Are you standing? Do you need some encouragement? Do you need some hope? Do you need some help? So we're going to see here again, Paul exhorting the Colossians, in the knowledge that they have of who God is and who Jesus is, to walk as those who are already worthy. So this is key. He's going to talk about worthiness. It doesn't mean earn it. It doesn't mean get it. It means you got it. So since you're worthy, walk as one who's worthy. Since you're blameless, walk as one who's blameless. Since you're justified, walk as one who's justified. Since you're saved, walk as one who's saved. You're immortal now. All right, let's... 
dig straight through this text together. Uh, verse 1 will open the way that all of Paul's letters open. It's pretty standard in the ancient world. You just say your name first. Hey, I'm the guy writing the letters. The way it goes. So Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. So this letter is written not only by Paul, but by Timothy. Timothy, his traveling companion, Timothy, a man probably half of Paul's age, uh, a young man who became a pastor under Paul's guidance, and then eventually is left to be a pastor without Paul. And is the passing forward of the apostleship to a new generation. Now, apostleship is a very specific thing. We reserve that term only for those individuals who the scripture names apostles. There were 12, and then Judas died, and then there were 12 more with the addition of Matthias, and then Paul gets made an apostle. And then we're told at various points that a guy named Apollos and a guy named Barnabas are apostles. But after that, there are, there are no more apostles. There are plenty of preachers. There are plenty of overseers. There are pretty, plenty of servants of the word. Philip, the servant, right? Um, uh, Stephen, the servant, but they're not apostles. So what is apostle? Well, generally, we're going to use that word to mean someone who saw Jesus alive and was told by Jesus, when Jesus was alive, you're a preacher now. So the big difference between a pastor and apostle is I haven't seen Jesus alive. I've still been told to preach. He did it through his body, the church. That's you. So apostleship is connected to pastoral ministry, but they're different. There's a lot more authority when Jesus says, you speak for me now, and I'm going to tell you what to say. We receive the teaching of the apostles, their writings, and we preach that. Rather than, if I write you a letter, you know, it doesn't go in the Bible later. It doesn't work that way. Okay, so it's probably enough there. Paul, an apostle. This is authoritative, is what he's saying. I have authority to tell you the truth. To the saints, that means holy ones, that means those set apart, and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossa. Again, kind of a a backwater town. It's definitely a town. It's not a village, but it's a little bit out of the way. It's not like Ephesus. In the letter between Colossa and Ephesus, and actually Laodicea, there's a bunch of letters that were probably sent together, possibly with Philemon as well. We'll leave that for another time, but it's a little bit out of the way. Um, we'll leave that there. Uh, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Standard greetings in the ancient world, even for non-Christians. But for us, grace and peace have significant meaning. Since you're saved by grace and God's promise is peace, uh, it really is substantival there. Then he breaks into a section in which he's going to praise them for being Christians. Verse 3, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you. As indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it does also among you, since the day that you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Let's start with Epaphras. Epaphras is probably the preacher who founded 
the church in Colossae. He was the one who went there as a Christian with no Christians there and converted people to Christianity. Now it would seem he has traveled to visit Paul. It's likely that Paul's in Rome under guard. You can make arguments for other places, but it seems likely that he's in Rome. He's traveled to Paul, and he's probably asking questions that Paul's going to answer in this letter about the divinity of Jesus Christ in order that he can go back and preach what the apostle says to the church that he's serving as pastor of. And so here Paul is saying, you can trust this guy. He's done a good job so far. Listen to him when he comes back, right? Now in that though, going back to the start of that paragraph, Paul is also saying, I'm so glad you're Christians. I'm just so glad you're Christians. I pray for you now that I know who you are. I ask God to sustain you in the faith, to strengthen you in the faith. And I I, I do have to say that this is something that, as your pastor, I do feel about you. I always have. From the moment I was called here to fill in, I've prayed for St. Paul Lutheran Church, that you would be rooted and established in the faith, that you would have all wisdom poured out upon you, that you would be a congregation that endures not just to the next budget year, but to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation beyond. I'm going to go on a tangent here. I, I saw a meme about two weeks ago and it was one of these church growth pastors i don't know if you've ever seen these guys they want to change everything at church because if you don't the church is going to die they tell you that that's why you need some rock and roll rock and roll save the church um so this guy is is given a a speech and he basically says paul was the best missionary there ever was and all of his churches died so we have to expect our churches to die and we need to plant new ones and then right next to it it had four other, three other pictures. It had the Bishop of, of uh, Corinth, had the, the Bishop of uh, Thessalonica, and the Bishop of Philippi. Like today, the actual guy who's the pastor at the church that Paul planted, right? They've been here all that time. Yeah? Now, granted, they're Eastern Orthodox, so maybe if you're a Baptist or a, a Methodist, you don't think they're really Christians. We think they're Christians. We disagree with them on some things, but they're Christian. So anyway, my prayer is that St. Paul Lutheran Church lasts until Jesus gets back. And there's no reason to believe it shouldn't. It really isn't, especially the way that Paul talks here. I'm praying that you would go on, okay? So that's verse four. Um, How are you going to go on? You know, because of this hope laid up for you in heaven, he's praying that you would remember hope. This is really, really key. Hope isn't now. You experience hope now, but it's in something that's later. If you have what you hope for, the hope's gone, right? The joy has come. The hope laid up for us in heaven is Jesus himself who will return to make your current body like his resurrected body. That is the hope to which we cling as we walk through this wasteland toward what we can call the life of the world to come. And this is maybe one of the most difficult things for an American, modern, Christian, Lutheran, or otherwise to to grapple with, that this life doesn't ultimately matter. You're going to have a purpose. You're going to have goals. You're going to have good things. But they're all going to perish. And you're walking toward a life that ultimately matters and will never perish. And so again, 
The whole point of this is, so walk as somebody who knows that. Don't walk as somebody who doesn't know where you are. Know where you are. And then learn how to love where you are, for it's been redeemed, even though you know, the days are evil and the time is short. Right? Cling to the hope in heaven. Of this hope, Jesus' resurrection, he is risen. Of this you heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Remember, that's the good spell. Now, there's no such thing as a good spell. Magic's evil. You're right. But God has told a story that is better than magic. And it is going to weave a truth and a reality into you that will lead unto everlasting life. And in the truth of that good spell, the gospel that has come to you, the whole world, he says, is bearing fruit. I'd remember from Romans chapter 8 that the whole creation is groaning in song, waiting for the day of your resurrection. Because they know that in your unleashing, so will they be unleashed as well. Also then, don't miss it, the day that you heard of this, you understood the grace of God. This gets back to what David was saying in 2 Samuel 22, that the foremost reality of Christianity is God is good and merciful. Is he just? Yes. Does he hate bad measurement? Yes. But before that, he loves to have mercy and show mercy. So unlike the rest of the world who walks in the darkness of their clouded minds, believing they need to earn something in God's sight, you are free to walk under grace. Certain that he holds you in the palm of your hand, that your feet are set in a wide and a safe place, that there is no way for you to go off this path so long as the path is Jesus. He is a firm foundation. All right, verse 9, going to that next paragraph. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So, more about, I've heard of you, I've never met you, but I'm praying for you. And what's he praying? That you would have knowledge of wisdom and understanding. Of course, this is going to be about the hope laid up for you in heaven, who is Jesus. But, but let, me, let, me, let me show you something. Would you put your finger in Colossians chapter 1 and start flipping backwards in your Bible to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 1, that's going to be on page 527. I'm just going to read one verse here. It's the second verse in the book. Proverbs 1 verse 2 on page 527 says, To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight. Now, in English, there are five different words there that are kind of jumping out. Know, like knowledge, wisdom, instruction, understanding, and insight. Well, we can cross one off. Insight is the same word. It's understanding and understanding. Now, there's four words there. Knowledge, wisdom, instruction, and understanding. The only one Paul didn't just talk about in Colossians is instruction. But he says he wants you to know wisdom and have understanding. And look, it's how the book starts in Proverbs. Something tells me that once you're a Christian, you're supposed to read the Proverbs. 
It'll help you. Uh, just, just a thought there. Let's go back to Colossians. I, I can't ignore it when in the same verse, the same words show up. Granted, it's Hebrew versus English, but I can't ignore it. His prayer is you would be filled with all knowledge of spiritual wisdom. That means to know where you are, to know who God is, and to know where God is taking you. So you're able to see clearly what real good is and what real evil is, so you may avoid the evil way. Yeah. So as to verse 10, here's that walking language. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. I mean, you can do two things here. You can take walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, and you can think it means you need to become worthy. Or you can take walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, and you can hear it as because I am worthy, I'm going to walk that way. I'm going to suggest that's the way to take it. He's going to declare over and over again that you're already purchased, you're already bought, you already got the blood on you, you already got the justification. So now, since you're justified, live like it. Since you can't fall, and don't get me wrong, it's possible to lose your faith, but that shouldn't be the driving thought that drives you every day. You should drive every day knowing you can't lose your faith because you're in Jesus. The only way you lose your faith is you don't believe in Jesus. You're not going to do that. So since you're not going to ever lose your faith in Jesus, walk like it. Walk like it. Since you're worthy, walk like it. Since you've been declared good, choose it. Chase it. Don't be afraid of it. Even and especially when you find that you fail. Even and especially in the moment where you don't feel blameless. Walk like it anyway. Because you are. Uh, the greatest power the Christian has is not to stop sinning. It's to catch the sin as it's happening and not believe it's who you really are. Yeah? So you're in that moment. What is it? Fear? Anger? Disbelief? Doubt? You catch it. It's down in your stomach, right? It goes from your head to your stomach right away. Oh, there it is. Does it have to come out of you? No, it doesn't. Do you have to use it to push back at that person who made you feel that way? No, you don't. Did you? Can you repent? Yes, you can. That's the point. It's not about perfection. It's about embracing the struggle. And let me tell it to you one more way here. The non-Christian doesn't struggle over these things. A non-Christian isn't worried about his righteousness before God the way that a Christian is. A non-Christian's conscience is always trying to make excuses. A Christian is able to stop making excuses and simply know Jesus is enough. Now what do I do? I'm going to try, try to stop covering what I did, trying to stop proving that what I did was okay, and instead say, you know what? I was wrong. But now I want to do what's right. That is to strive to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Yeah. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. That next section. Does that mean that when you walk worthy, you'll be pleasing? No. You're going to try to walk worthy because you know you're pleasing. That's the point. Since God's for you, who's going to be against you? 
Even though it might look like doing evil will make it better, you know it won't. Even though it may look like doing good might cause you suffering, you know that's what Jesus did. And so because God is pleased with you, and you know this because that's what Jesus has done for you, that's who Jesus is, you can walk pleasing to him. Walk with the knowledge that God is for you. Bearing fruit in every good work, it says. Excuse me. Uh, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. Okay, so we really want to break that down here too. Bearing fruit in every good work, right? So the good work that you do, when you do good, it's the fruit that Christianity draws out of you. It's not the root. The root is Jesus. You're the tree. He's declared that you're a good tree. Since you're a good tree, you're going to bear good fruit. Does that mean you should go around checking on your good works to see if they're good enough so you can know you're a Christian? No. Stop looking at yourself. It's the worst thing you can do. It's the worst work. Don't measure your fruit. Measure your neighbor, not his fruit, but his need. The good fruit we are to bear is the fruit God's going to pull out of us by showing us mercy until we figure out that's the best thing to do in general. And then we're going to begin to do that to others on and on as we walk through the wilderness toward the promised land. Thus, increasing in the knowledge of God. I love that word theology. Theology is an old fancy word for knowledge of God. Yeah. So you want to increase in knowing God. How are you going to do that? Read your Bible. Now you're here. You're at church. Take some notes. Listen. It's happening. It's not going to stop. Hear it as a promise, not as something to condemn you. Know that in Christ, the rest of your life, you're going to increase in knowledge of God. And that means an increase in your awareness that he's merciful. More and more, bit by bit. Are you going to have ups and downs? Absolutely. But you're going to know who he is. He's not going to show himself torturous. You're going to see even when it's bad, it's good. Even when the door is closed, the door is open. Even when he dies, it's only so he can rise. And so also for you. So that you'll be strengthened with all power. That's the power of faith, right? To believe these things. According to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience. Notice, it's not for control. The power is the power to endure. Since we're walking through a wasteland where things don't go the way that we want, where even our prayers for things to go the way that they want sometimes get a pretty solid no, the power of Christianity is patience. The power of Christianity is endurance. And we're not swayed from our trust just because Jesus hasn't given us what we want yet. We know we're not even where we're supposed to be. We're living in a desert. So eat the manna, eat the quail, drink the water, and expect something better is on the way. Giving thanks to the Father for what's on the way. What he has qualified you, the rest of verse 12. He has qualified you. He took care of it. He has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. That's the resurrection of your body. That's the life of the world to come. That's the real hope again. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness 
and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Again, notice the past tense. He has, he has, it's finished. So please don't hear me saying, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord as if it isn't finished. Walk like it's finished. Yeah, walk like it's finished. For in him you have, verse 14, redemption. That means you've been bought back. Redemption, the forgiveness of your sins. It's been a while since I talked about forgiveness. Do you know the word forgiveness in Greek is the same word as divorce? Absolute same word. There's no difference. And if you think about it, it makes sense. Because what happens when you divorce a woman, especially in the Old Testament world or the old world, uh, women didn't usually divorce men. Men just divorced women. What happened was you would send her away. So to divorce in Greek, afeemi, is to send away. And so what does God do with your sins? He divorces them. He sends them away. We translate it as forgiveness because that helps us understand it. But I really like that, that idea. You know, a divorce between a man and a woman joined together by God, this is not good. This is bad. A divorce between me and my evil, this is awesome. It was the best thing I ever heard about. You mean he's going to do that? Yes, he's going to do that. That's the good spell. Yeah, that's the good news. Now, he's going to get into now Christ, right? We just talked about Christ has done this. Now he's going to emphasize this Godhead of Christ thing. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. This is the thrust point, right? He's not just a man. He's not just an elevated creature. He's not an extremely powerful angel. He is God in his invisible majesty, the God who no one can see and live. He is that God made visible now. And that makes him forever the firstborn over, I would kind of have you insert here, the new creation. The new creation. Jesus was not the firstborn of of this creation. Uh, you could look at the firstborn in two different ways of this creation. Uh, on the first day, God said, let there be light. And my guess is a guy named Lightbringer, Lucifer, showed up. Uh, and he seemed to be in charge for a few days. You know, the sun was put under him, the stars, the waters, and all this stuff. But then there's this other guy that shows up who's, who's made out of dirt. God even calls him like dirt. Adam, it means land, but it means dirt. And that guy gets given all the authority so that the firstborn, Lucifer, sees the guy who's not firstborn in his mind, and he gets declared firstborn, the one with all authority. And then the fight occurs. He doesn't like that. He decides to usher in a little bit of a rebellion. But any case, so that's, that's this age we're living in, in which the power that Adam had as ruler has been taken from him by the prince of darkness, who now is called by scripture, the prince of this age. So when you wonder why it all looks so bad, it's pretty e- easy. The, the, the devil is, is sort of king. He's just not king of kings. He's just a king. And the king of kings reigns, but he's got that devil on a leash. He's holding him tight because he's, meanwhile, plundering his house, which is this creation. He's plundering his house, this creation, to get you and pull you out of this creation into the next one, of which he is the firstborn. And this, then, is all about his resurrection from the dead, the eighth day, right? Something new. The man who was a son of man is now dead, but now the man who is a son of God beats death. 
And all the rest of history is going to be built on that, including eternity. All right, so then by him, this is going back to the beginning, verse 16, for by him all things were created, like he made the devil. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, there's no power that's not given by God. All things were created through him and for him. He made you for him. You know, I don't know how long it's been since you've had kids or if you've had kids yet that that make stuff. One of the fun things about watching my kids is when they, they make stuff. I'm always amazed at their, their fingers and how they grew from these little tiny nuggets that didn't do nothing to like now they can like take a pencil and draw something or, or take some Legos and put them all together and build this fantastic thing. They make stuff and they always love what they make. They want you as a parent to love it too, by the way. You know, they bring you that little crayon thing and it's like, you know, drawn like this and you're supposed to go, that's amazing. Because it is for a three-year-old. It's really good for a three-year-old. It's just not that good for a 28-year-old, right? But, but, so this is how God sees you. He made you for him. You're his design. And that includes the redemption. That includes the buying back, right? So he is, verse 17, before all things and in him all things hold together. He's God. And on top of being God, he's become, verse 18, the head of the body, the church. Okay, so here we have some language about what it means to be Christians. He doesn't spend a lot of time on this word church. And in the Greek, it, it doesn't sound like church. If I say the word, are you going to church, you're going to imagine this building. Like There's just no way around it. You're going to imagine this building, no matter how much I tell you that's not what church is. We can't stop it. It's English, church. But the word in the Greek, ekklesia, is the word exit, and the word call smashed together, to call to exit, to call out. And what it means is you were home and the people in town needed a meeting. And so they called everyone out of their homes to get together for a meeting. So you can translate it as assembly. You can translate it as gathering. The reason we translate it as church is because it came through the German. And the German for assembly is Kirka. And since, you know, we Americans pronounce St. Louis like St. Louis, we pronounce Kirke like church, right? We just kind of butcher it, okay? Uh, so in any case, uh, here though, he's saying that Christ is not just the creator. He's also the head of the church, which is the people called out that we are together a body, a new humanity, and this is this idea of him being firstborn into it. But because we're tied to him, we are going to go where he goes the same way right now we go where Adam went. Adam went into the grave, and so we're born into that. Jesus came out of the grave. He's your head. And so you as his body are going to come out of the grave too. That is then he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Yeah, rest of verse 18. That in everything he might be preeminent. So he remains God. He remains first, even as a man now. He is the firstborn of your life. Yeah. Verse 19, for in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Yeah. Again, it is about as clear a statement in the Bible as you're going to get about Jesus being God. Yeah. You'll run into these people. Jesus never said he was God. Well, 
I mean, if you're ignorant and don't know how to like hear what he said when he says before Abraham was, I am, but you're right. He never said the phrase, I am God. But Paul pretty much said that he is right here. You know, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. I mean, what else does that mean? It's pretty straightforward. Verse 20, more than that, why was God in him to reconcile to himself all things? whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus, who is God, became a man so that we could kill him. Because by killing him, we fixed everything. Now, it was an accident from where we were pointing out. We thought we were getting rid of the guy. But so far as he concerned it, he knew he was going to stand in the breach and the blood that he would shed would be so holy so righteous, by submitting himself to this as the will of the Father, it was so justifying that all of creation was fixed in that moment. The temple curtain is torn in two because there's no more sacrifices to be made. It is done. It is done. So that verse 21, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. And there's more there, but, but I want to emphasize that you were, past tense, alienated. You were, past tense, hostile in mind toward God. This is what we call original sin. Or the flesh, the knowledge that all people are born into this problem. It's also, do you remember this one? Maybe you heard it once upon a time in catechism. It's called concupiscence. Anybody, somebody, give me, a, give me some love. There we go, a couple got it. So concupiscence, uh, it means to tend to evil. To tend to evil. If you're given two choices, which one are you going to choose? The one that is good for you or the one that's bad for you? You can choose the one that's good for you, uh, well, even if it hurts somebody else. That's who we are by birth. Now, what Paul is going to say, though, is you're no longer only this. But first, first, understand everybody else is. The whole world is being run by wicked people who like being wicked. And the glory of Christianity is that you don't have to be that anymore. You're free. You're plucked out of that fire. All right. So that, okay, so let's read it through here. You who were once alienated a hostile mind, he has reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to. What's he going to do with this purchasing of you? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So his goal is that you will be good. You should hear that as a promise again, that on the day of resurrection, you will have no more challenges to this. You're only going to know innocence and righteousness and blessedness. And because right now you don't get to experience that, you get to believe in it, which is its own kind of good. To trust God, to be good enough, to present you blameless on the last day, is the greatest good you can have in this life. And it will not leave you without action. Because you can't receive mercy for very long without 
kind of wanting to share it. You can't find the peace that passes understanding in your conscience as it battles with Jesus for justification, being set free from the need to prove yourself. You can't find that and not actually think it's worth talking about, much less want other people to have it too. It has to happen. The Spirit does His work. So verse 23, it says, if there. The word if in Greek can also mean because. And I would much rather personally hear this as because, right? So, so I'm going to read. Um, I'm going to read all of it here from 21 on, but I'm going to go on and I'm going to say because. Okay, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, because indeed you continue in the faith. Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So again, you're able to walk worthy because you're not walking by sight, you're walking by faith. Since you are going to continue in trusting that the hope of Jesus' coming resurrection is sufficient for you, you're going to stand. And you're not going to stand in such a way that says, well, I did it. I mean, that's that's the dumbest thing you can hear me say right now. He just said I'm supposed to do it. I've been at pains to make it clear to you. You're not supposed to do it. You're going to do it because he's going to make you do it. What's he going to make you do? Trust in him. Have some patience. Love the fact that he's on your side. See, it look like he's not on your side and believe he's on your side anyway. And then one day, boom, explode in resurrection light, glorious and everlasting with all the rest of us. Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope. The hope. You're walking toward something better. Before I go on, I'm going to try to recapture what I said at the, the first service. I don't know if I can do it as good. I really do believe this. For me, this is my experience, okay? That the hardest thing about Christianity is that I want it now. I don't want to wait for the life of the world to come. I want it now. I want this world to be okay. I want this life to be better. I want to have what I think is good now. Can somebody testify? Anybody else? Yeah, it's hard. I don't think it's always been as hard as it is right now. So I don't think this is uncommon to man. But I think we live at a time in which, in which the habit of quick, instant um, gratification, or in which if I have a problem, I can take a pill, huh? it's trained us to expect more from this valley than is really here. And so the solution to this wanting it now is to discipline your mind to remember then is coming. This doesn't mean that God isn't with you now. He's with you now to get you to then. And that shift in thinking is extreme power, as he already called it. It is endurance. It is patience. But it really means you have to confess to yourself that the life of the world to come is why you're here right now. You're not here right now for right now. 
You're here for the life of the world to come. Maybe you've heard me tell you, I want a cathedral on this corner before I'm dead, or at least the, 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 the foundation stone in the ground. I want it at least four to five times as big as this room. I want it in the shape of the cross. I want it made out of stone, no particle board, no uh, drywall. I want this thing to be glorious. I want it to be filled with light. I want a giant crucifix. I want it. Why? Well, not so that I can have it. I want it so that those who come after can know where we were going. And that we had no question in our minds that it was even worth sacrificing what we have here to put something here that preaches we're going somewhere else. You know, back in the day, they used to have uh, some of the burial plots underneath the church. You'd go down under the altar and the whole basement would be filled with where the tombs were. And they'd put you there. Why? Well, because it's where you're going. Now, we may never get this cathedral here. I don't know. Jesus could come back tomorrow and hallelujah. Uh, wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? But what I, what I want to emphasize here, though, is if I want that cathedral here for me, I'm missing the point. What I want is to walk from here to resurrection. And what I want is to learn to tune my life to believe that so that I act on that so that no one can put me off that game with their lies and their stories about how I should worry about this and that other thing because, oh no, and watch out. I want to know with conviction that this altar is going to remain until Jesus comes back because Jesus is sitting on it. And as he sits on it, the everlasting man, he's giving us all the confidence to let nothing deceive us nor steal from us our inheritance and our hope. Again, the life of the world to come is more important than this one. And that is one of the hardest things about being a Christian right now, is just to believe that at all. Because the experience screams at you, right now, right now, right now. And Christianity's sitting here saying, he's coming. He's coming soon. It's going to get better. Verse 24 then gets into how the power is the power to suffer. Now I rejoice in my sufferings. For your sake. I mean, he's, he's saying that because of what I just said. He has learned the secret of being content. He has learned that if he dies, it is gain. He has learned that nothing that he sacrifices in this life will not be restored 100 fold. And so when he faces suffering, he's kind of like, yeah, another chance to show what I believe. Now, I, I don't claim to achieve this. I don't. I just, Paul but he says it right here. I, I rejoice in my sufferings. Another chance to prove the devil's wrong just by believing. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Remember, he's in jail as he writes this. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body that is the church. Now, this does not mean that Christ's death was not sufficient. What it means is that his death and suffering now is given to us to participate in. And so from now until the end of the world, Christians are going to suffer. And this is Christ's suffering. He, he is suffering in you. And so learning to see that while the suffering is taking place, again, reminds you of the hope, which Paul again claims for himself. He calls himself then in verse 25, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. 
That's that apostleship thing from earlier. What's his job as an apostle? To make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations and now revealed to his saints. So he says there's something new. This gospel is new. It's the New Testament. There's something new that was hidden even from Christians before Christ came. All the Old Testament believers, they weren't Jews. Judaism doesn't really even exist until after it rejects Christianity. They were Hebrews. They were believers in Abraham's faith. But they had something hidden from them. They didn't quite get to see it the way we do. He's going to tell us what that is. Uh, To them, God chose to make known how great among the nations are the riches of the glory of this mystery. The them there is you, that's us, the saints, the Christian church. We are among the Gentiles, that is, we are built of every nation, every tongue under heaven. And he's chosen to let us know what this mystery is. It's no longer hidden. Rest of the verse, verse 27. The mystery is Christ in you. The hope of glory. There's so much there, we're basically out of time. Christ is in you. God is inside of you. You weren't born this way. It's not because of how great you are. It's because of how great he is. He has now chosen to be inside of you. And he's inside of you as the hope of glory. He's inside of you as the knowledge that he has risen. That is the inspiration that he has inhabited you with. And Paul is like, do you see it? The Old Testament believers thought he was in a building. He was in the building. But he was in this building, separated them, separated from them by, by a, a wall of written commandments and rules and regulations that only exposed their guilt and their idolatry all the more. He has torn that down. He has nailed the debt to the cross. And he now comes to you in his body and blood to literally enter your mouth with an everlasting, resurrected body, making you one with him, right? Christ is in you. The word you there, by the way, is plural, y'all. It's you all together that he is in. You're individually, you got Christ in you, don't get me wrong, but then together you got Christ in you, and that makes you all powerful, supernatural, set apart, The world is not worthy of you because Christ has chosen to make you so. So him we proclaim, since it's his word. Verse 28, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. There's that wisdom idea again, learn to see. That we may present everyone mature in Christ. That you would know who you are in Christ. No, think for a moment, it's up to you. Think for every moment, you've been bought with a price. You belong to him now. That's maturity. For this, he says, I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. For Paul, his entire life has become about trying to get everyone to understand you're free. You're unleashed. You're immortal now. You've been declared worthy. So lift up your head. Stop wallowing in the muck with all the fears and anxieties of the present age. Even as you feel them, tell them they aren't yours anymore. Call them the lies that they are. Declare that you belong to Jesus now. 
saying hallelujah. So, there you go. I, I was just, yeah, thank you. That was good. That was good. Uh, and, well, let me just close it with this then. Don't neglect to see that Christ is in you right now in this meal. Since that's true, what on earth can stop you? Nothing. In the name of Jesus. Amen.